All right, everyone, welcome to the newest episode of the Jay Davis podcast. I'm super excited to have Reed Quinn with us. He is the founder of Spark Innovation, uh, has launched a ton of brands, uh, and has a lot of entrepreneurial experience. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Reed. Thanks for having me on. Well, why don't you start uh, giving people a quick background and bio of what you've been up to? Uh, I cut my teeth on uh, gift cards back when that was. Uh, a thing in the early 2000s, people were transitioning from gift certificates to gift cards. And uh, we designed a lot of programs uh, for different retail customers. So everybody from like Walmart and Home Depot to, I don't know, Neiman Marcus to 7-Eleven. Uh, yeah, everybody had gift cards. So um, after that, went and started a business called uh, KT Tate with uh, three other founders. And uh, just had a lot of fun with that business. Uh, Sold that, uh, well, sold half of it to a, a private equity company and then kind of wisened up. I decided, you know, um, it's a lot of work to start a consumer product company and to, to, you know, create all the systems that link the inventory and the funds and the data, you know, all together and to get that flowing. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm never going to sell a company again, maybe just a brand. Yeah. You know, and so then, then there, um, with some other partners, we started Spark Innovation, which has been a holding company for a lot of brands. Nobody's ever heard of Spark, but you may have heard of FiberFix or Two Blocks or Nine Blocks or Lumable or um, you know some of our other brands. We have a brand called CoverGrip. Uh, we're working on one right now called Labello. Um, and uh, yeah, we just uh, start or uh, license, uh, you know, start brands or license products and, and build brands around them. And then um, uh, take them to retail, build them up. And then, you know, in the consumer product space, it's pretty normal for a brand to kind of grow and then to be sold to, you know, it's kind of a pond with many different sized yeah. fish. And there's always a bigger fish that kind of eats up these little brands and puts them in their portfolio and grows them to a certain point and then maybe combines them and then sells the portfolio. And, uh, so we're kind of at the very front end of that. We're the, we're the small fish in a big pond. So love it. Well, you've had a lot of experience launching brands and you guys have had brands go on Shark Tank and, and do a lot of amazing things. What have been some of those key lessons? What do you think are the things that maybe don't get talked enough about in entrepreneurship? I think there's a lot of like, you know, there's kind of the sexy stuff that everyone wants to talk about all the time, like coming up with new ideas. What are some of those maybe unexpected lessons you've had to learn the hard way? Well, um, consumer products are a lot different than, um, you know, for example, like software as a service, yeah. there's a lot of companies out there that require a, a large amount of kind of upfront and then, um, yeah. And, and those businesses tend to be kind of swings for the fences, right? Like, right. They're, they're fairly binary. A lot of times they'll raise money because they're kind of risky, but if they make it, then they're very successful and very profitable. Um, consumer products, you know, I see a lot more base hits, you know, there are a lot of, um, of products that, uh, can do a couple million dollars a year, maybe five, $6 million a year. Uh, there are very few that can do hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Um, you know, it's, it's much harder to hit, a, a you know, smash it out of the park, but it's much easier to get on base. And, um, so we actually like that about consumer products. Um. You know, we've never had to raise money for any of our, uh, 
brands, you know, or, or, or put in a ton of capital because, you know, you can usually get to a, a minimum viable product. You can usually get that sold to a retailer, get a test order, you know, with, with very minimal capital outlay. Now it'll get very serious very quickly if it starts to go well. Um, but, but at that point, it's kind of a timing issue, yeah. right? And so, um, you know, a lot of people approach, uh, new ventures with, okay, first we got to fundraise, then we got to do this. Then we, you know, we got to put together the team. We got to do this. You know, I think consumer products is unique in that you can kind of build as you go. Yeah. You can kind of get to the first milestone. And if, if, if the good indicators are there, it's, it's not very far to the next milestone. And then you put a little bit more money, a little bit more effort, then maybe add one person to the team. And, and so, um, you know. People say, well, you know, entrepreneurship is super risky. Consumer products, you know, that's even more risky. You know, you, the retailers, they have all these requirements and there's all these startup costs. And, and and I think we've done it in the most conservative and the safest way possible. I'm, I'm not a, adverse to risk, but a consumer products company is one where you don't really need to take a lot of risk. You can actually sell the inventory before you have to order. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you can. And, and so... You know, for me, um, that is one big takeaway is, is how you approach these types of business. Another one is it, it's, it's not so much about the idea as it is about the execution. We see wonderful ideas all the time, like many a week where it's like, yeah, you could, you could make a business out of it. You could make a, a good living out of that, but it all comes down to the execution. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and some of that is, is on the person, but some of that is luck, yeah. you know, some of that is the right buyer and the right, you know, right line review that the sales cycle on consumer products, especially in retail tends to be very long and, uh, you know, having a local retailer that has a line review that's next month instead of next year, uh, can, can have a very material impact on how quickly that business gets off the ground and whether it actually does get off. So, um, there's some things outside, outside your control. Um, a lot of the, the big, uh, um, decisions are, are made by just a few key decision makers at, at some of the large retailers. Um, so anyway, there's some unique things about these businesses and things that we like, some things that we don't like. Yeah. Well, I think you just explained very clearly why the last couple of years, the approach that many investors have taken to consumer products is so so fundamentally flawed because they approached it as if it's software. Uh, and let's put, you know, tens of tens of millions of dollars into stuff that really hasn't even been proven yet. So I think we've seen that a lot. What, what are you, when you look at an idea, I think this is something that I notice and people have had a lot of success and had repeat success. When you look at an idea, what is the way that you evaluate that idea? What are the key things you're looking for? Oh, there's a lot of them, um, you know, and it, and it really depends. Um, you know, when you're going direct to consumer, you know, we really like a consumer product, a product to have a high price point, right. To be able to justify that direct consumer advertising, that high customer acquisition cost. When it's in retail, we like it to have a low, almost like an impulse price point, you know, kind of a trying yeah. There's a really low threshold. Um, we'd like it to be aligned with people's hobbies. Right. Where they're, where they're a little bit more willing to spend money or a little bit more willing to do a little bit of research about the product. Um, something that's very functional, they're much more likely to go with a kind of a tried and true brand or something that is low cost. Whereas if it's, if it's something that's aligned with their interests, 
um, they they have a, a, a little bit higher threshold to pay and and a and a higher threshold to to try yeah. new things. Um, it has to be highly differentiated, but not too differentiated, yeah. right? It has to be something that they can get in a passing glance. What is different and what is better about this, right? And if it's too different, they won't get that. But if it's too similar, then they won't yeah. care, right? So it's it's finding an innovation that is meaningful, but also easy to understand. That's at the right price point, um, you know. But we've had lots of ideas that have been shut down for reasons that have nothing to do with the. Yeah. Idea. Or I'll give you an example of this. Um, maybe a couple. Um, you know, we worked on a project a couple of years ago that was like a universal battery pack. Um, so it was a battery pack that would work for different power tools. So you have your Makita and your, um, you know, Ryobi and you have your DeWalt and you have your, you know, all, all these different brands and they all have their own battery, yeah. right? Well, it's not a, a terrible, difficult amount of, you know, engineering to figure out like adapters and, and things that would allow you to have one battery pack that could be used for, for you know, yeah, for all of that. And, um, it's a real problem. Job sites without power installers, you know, uh, there are people that use those tools every single day. But what we found very quickly is that they all buy them at the major retailers. We have great relationships with Home Depot. As we talk to the buyer and we say, Hey, we think this would be a slam dunk, you know, and here's how we do it. And we, we're going to file a patent and we have the, you know, and, and they said, absolutely not. And it had nothing to do with the idea. They agree that it would sell like hotcakes. The problem is is that the reason that they can sell a $50 drill is because the replacement battery costs 75, yeah. <laughs> right? Like it, it's the printer and the printer yeah. ink problem, right? I can give you a really cheap printer if I can charge you through the nose for the ink, which is the recurring charge. And I know that once you buy that Makita Sawzall, you're a Makita guy for life, at least for that. Right. And, and if you use it on a daily basis, you're going to need to replace that battery every year, maybe every 18 months if you're yeah. lucky. And, and I'll be able to sell that again. So, so that we just can't rock the boat with these vendor relationships, you know, doing this. So, you know, we run into products all the time that for non, you know, product related reasons, yeah. it has nothing to do with the, how, how good the idea is or how, how ready the market is for it, but just the unit novels or the politics or, you know, uh, some, you know, patent to, or maybe not, not even patent, just a litigious category. You know, it, it's just something that we don't want to touch. So there's, um, you know, there's a lot of things that we stay away from. I, I really don't like consumer electronics. I've told my partners <laughs> to slap me anytime I come to them with a consumer electronic. It's, it's a very, it's, it's a very alluring one, but when you get into UL and battery and Wi-Fi and FCC and, you know, it, it's just not yeah. worth it. And, and everybody considers themselves a connoisseur of electronics. Um, one thing that we really like, especially being in consumer products, is if we can sell not only to consumers, but to professionals, yeah. right? Consumer products have been easily disrupted over the last few years. You know, a lot of things have gone from, you know, brick and mortar sales to online. You've seen the, the disappearance almost completely of toys. You know, toy, toys are asking out of business and, you know, um, there's uh, a lot of the smaller choice stores are struggling and, and um, this moved online. Books have moved online. There's lots of categories that have moved online. So we try to identify categories that are very hard to be disrupted by, by uh, online yeah. retail. And one of those is automotive. Another one is hardware. 
um, you have a lot of people who are using those products that are professionals. It's a collision repair shop. It's an auto body shop. It's a, you know, and they can't wait for, you know, next day prime to get that part. They've got somebody coming back to get the car at five o'clock and they've got to have that part. And they get that at O'Reilly's. They get that at Napa or AutoZone or Pet Boys. You know, you have a plumber, an electrician, a carpenter. They don't know what they need for the job until they look at the job in the morning and they go get the supplies and they, they then they work on the job, you know? And uh, so they need to have those products in retail. Again, they can't just order it online. And so, um, you know, those stores that are supported by a large professional network have, have just been a really good spot yeah. for us. So we, we pay attention to products that, that can go into those channels, uh, you know, and, and, and they get a, a plus one, you know, in our valuation more than, more than one that yeah. doesn't. So anyway, just lots of things. I like love that. that. I think that's actually really great. And I think it speaks to a, uh, I think when people say retail is going to die, I, I just don't think they even think about things like that. What you just explained, like professionals can't wait three days or even two days. They need it now. Uh, yeah, and it, it just is a misunderstanding. It, yeah, it's really interesting. I think of, of retail a little bit like I think of the railroads. You know, the railroads were the primary means of transportation for decades. And then the automobile came around and everybody says the railroads are dead. Yeah. Automobiles are so much more flexible. You know, you can drive them anywhere. You can, you know, everything's going to go by automobile. And there's a lot of freight that moves, you know, by truck. But one third of all freight still moves by rail a century later. Yeah. Right? Automobiles didn't kill railroads. What it did is it consolidated. Yeah. Instead of 100 railroad companies, you have 10. You have 10 phenomenally profitable railroad companies and, and you have a, 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 an amazing amount of freight that's moving by rail. Um, but, uh, you know, um, it's, it's still yeah. there. And I see retail in that same situation. Retail has incredibly high barriers to entry, but those same barriers to entry protect your business. Yeah. I mean, if, if I want to sell something on Amazon this afternoon that I'm not selling on, I can. I mean, it takes me about an yeah. hour to get to get something you know, from an idea to like, now it's, now it's available on Amazon by me. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, retail is nowhere near that quick, but those same barriers become the things that, that, uh, you know, protect, protect my business. And I think that, you know, you're not going to have drones delivering paint and two by fours anytime yeah. soon. Um, and, and that, uh, yeah, and, and the same thing, you've seen some disruption in grocery, but I think, uh, there will always be a need, um, to have, um, you know, a, a lot of products yeah. in retail. There's definitely been some consolidation, but as long as you're, you're on the inside of that consolidation, it's just getting better yeah. and better. No, I love that. I think that's such great advice. And I, and I love what you said earlier too, because I think this is one of the things I always hit on is so much time in entrepreneurship is spent on talking around ideas, come, how to come up with ideas, how to, how to innovate, how to think of new ideas. What idea should you choose? And I think what you just said is like, there's so many other things like the battery example where it's like, this is a great idea. Even the buyer is like, yeah, it's a phenomenal idea. The only problem is it doesn't work. And here's why is I'm not yeah. going to go basically give a big screw you to Milwaukee and DeWalt and all these massive, massive partners that we have uh, and screw all them over. So we will never buy that product. And it's, I think that's what often entrepreneurs don't think about. They just think of, 
could I create an idea that's a good idea? So. Yeah, we, we developed one product um, that was an air filter that was like almost like a, a stack of post-it notes. Oh, yeah. It was, it, it, you know, you could peel off one layer and then you had a clean air filter and then you peel off the next layer and you had a clean air filter. And, you know, we, we worked really hard to get the, the film, you know, just the right so that multiple layers of it were not, you know, hard on your furnace and it still let enough air through and there was enough spacing in them. And, you know, we made it work beautifully. But as soon as we showed it to the retailers, they were like, so people will come to my store less and buy fewer of yeah. these. Or like people who, who, you know, are changing their filter religiously every, you know, three months are now going to be able to go a year without buying this again. Like, yeah, no, not interested. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, thanks for developing a good product. And, and, and you can't, I believe you can overemphasize, you know, our, our ability to innovate and come up with new ideas has always far exceeded the market's ability to absorb those yeah. ideas. You know, it's, it's nice for us to go to an annual line review and talk to a buyer, a category manager, or a general merchandising manager in retail and say, you know, hey, here's, here's the, our current product set. And by the way, here are the new ones. But most of the, you know, they, they like to see that we're innovating and, and that shows some leadership and some initiative. But, you know, at the end of the day, most of the time they're saying, why would I take any of your new products when I don't currently carry all the ones that you yeah. have? Um, what other things, I mean, you guys are experts in retail and how to work with retail. What are the most common mistakes people make? Or what are the things you tell everyone? Here's what you have to do if you're thinking of breaking into retail. You know, that's a really good, um, question. I mean, uh, typically, uh, people will spend a lot of time making their product perfect. Uh, they will buy inventory before it's sold. They will, um, you know, get a bunch of rep groups, you know, all of yeah. those are, yeah. all of those are, are rookie mistakes, right? All of those things are, you know, in, in other words, what we'd rather do is we'd rather render it, create a one pager, send it out to the market, get everybody's feedback, make the changes rather than changing the, the mold, rather than being clear yeah. that we have it right. We want to get tons of feedback and we want to have it sold before we even make tooling because in retail, the sales cycle is so long. Once somebody shows interest and then even by the time they cut you the PO, you usually have at least 12 weeks, you know, sometimes 24 or so, because they're, they're often buying months ahead of, of the in-store date, the reset for that category. Right. And, uh, so, we'll, so we don't carry a lot of inventory. Uh, we definitely don't produce anything that's not already sold. And, um, you know, uh, rep groups will always care more about the relationship with the retailer than they will about any, any individual product. Right. And so, um, you know, you always wonder if rep groups saying, yeah, they may not be so interested whether it's, you know, I'm not willing to push this harder or like they kind of smoke screen it a little bit. Right. Yeah. And, and they can be very enthusiastic. Uh, up front, you know, to get the business and to represent you. But if the buyer doesn't say that enthusiasm, they're like, yeah, okay. We thought that was a dumb idea too. Moving on. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, it's not as hard to go direct as people think. I think people are worried, you know, oh, how do I get this manufacturer? I need to get somebody who's an expert in, in Chinese manufacturing or working with India where this product can be made or Vietnam and. And so they give away margin there and they give away margin, you know, to a rep group and they give away margin here. And then they don't realize like that was, that was all you were ever going to make. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's not, it's not uncommon for a retail product to have, you know, 10 to 15% net yeah. worth. Yeah. And, uh, if you, if you spend some and you develop outside and you sell outside your organization and you, um, you know, spend money on IP and stuff like that, all of a sudden you're, you, it, it's, it's, it's tight. Yeah. Well, I love that. I, I think that's actually what was one of my misconceptions that you hit on. I f- didn't, I thought it was like, we have one shot. We're going to get one 20 minute meeting. And if we don't blow them away, they're never going to talk to us again. And it's been interesting with pillow cube. It's, it's this ongoing, like, Hey, what do you think of this? And do you like this? And they're like, yeah, exactly. Like you said, Hey, change this. I want the box to be different. I want this different. You're like, okay, we'll change those. And then showing them that we can quickly do that. And one week later, come back and be like, we listened to everything you said, everything's changed, everything's fixed. And they're like, these are the people we want to work with. And I didn't know that that was the case. Yeah. And, and that, you're never going to get that out of a, out of a third party, right? I yeah. They, they may help you get that meeting a little bit faster than trying to, uh, you know, work through channels direct yourself. Yeah. But that's a point in time. And the relationship will go on for years. And yeah. like you said, there will be many live reviews and many emails back and forth and many suggestions and updates to packaging. And, you know, California Prop 65 will come out with other things that cause cancer and you have to adjust your formulation. You have to do <laughs> yeah. this. And then you have to add the patent to the, the packaging when it comes down and you have to notify people and then you have two packages in the system. There's, and they don't help with any of that, right? Yeah. And, and you think, wait a minute, why am I paying these guys 5% for that one introduction? Yeah. And, uh, you know, you'd be better off just networking or, or, you know, even almost like email blasting into that one meeting, initial meeting to, so where you can prove that, uh, um, you know, you're a really good vendor. Yeah. I think that's great. And I think that kind of boils down to like, and I think this is the thing I was had this flaw in thinking and I've seen this a lot in other entrepreneurs is there isn't a silver bullet with retail. It's just a lot of hard work and legwork and there is no like secret hack, but there are a lot, a lot of those things that you said save would have saved us a lot of time. And I think we'll save entrepreneurs a lot of time of, you know, here are the things it doesn't have to be perfect. Don't do molds before you've pitched it. (laughs) You know, I I wish that was a, I wish there was a book or a class or, you know, something that just said, okay, here's all the secrets to selling in retail is, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a, you know, everybody has a product idea, but very few people actually have experience taking things, particularly to retail online. I think yeah. more and more, there are lots of companies. That, okay. This is what we do. This is how we advertise. This is how we, you know, clone audiences and identify customers and AB test our way into, you know, positive ROAS and then, and, and we can do this, but, you know, particularly in, in, in retail. Um, I feel like, uh, you know, there's a vocabulary, there's kind of, uh, um, you know, and, and it's gotten harder, not easier. I, I thought over the years, I was like, okay, well, you know, just with people that I know that know how to do this, that have gone and started things, this has got to be a grown category, but it's not, um, more and more the retailers are saying, well, that was innovative 10 years ago, but it's kind of a commodity now. And we have our own pro- procurement office and we can do our own brand, our own private label, we're going to just do that. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, so we've seen, uh, you know, in a typical four foot planogram, a set, you know, that had 26 or 28 products, uh, a couple of years ago, 
uh, we're finding that now it's maybe five or six vendors yeah. that are split in place and maybe competing with Kirtland Signature or Painter's Pride or Everbuilt or some of these, uh, you know, retail brands where it's, the, it's, the, it's really the retail, just the retailer sourcing their own product. And so, you know, it's gotten, it's, it's gotten harder, not easier, but again, uh, you know, when you have a product in retail that, uh, is doing is performing really well, that customers get that they like, um, you know, basically getting high velocity and, and high margins, you know, lots of turns and, and the retailer making money on it, um, is not going anywhere. It can stay yeah. there for decades. And product flows one way and money flows the other way and the data matches the two together. And it's a, it's a really sweet business when you get them set up, but, uh, yeah, it, it can be, it can be a challenge to get to that point. Yeah. I love it. Well, we flew past, uh, the 20 minute mark. It was, uh, as always, every time we chat, I learned so much about, about the retail world, which I know a lot less about. So. Uh, appreciate all the wisdom and, and coming and sharing that with our audience. So thanks again. Well, thanks for taking some time. Good to talk with you. Awesome.